Hi, Eric. Hi, Aaron. How's it going? It's going pretty well. Good. Um, we are talking today about uh, another article in our series here. I say our series, but it's really um, BYU Studies series. <laughs> yes, although we have thoroughly adopted I mean, this came out in 2021. Like, yeah. It's ours now. <laughs> uh, Civil Disobedience and Latter-day Saint Thought by Nathan B. Omen. Yes. Omen? Omen. Yes, okay. I know him. Oh, you do? He was, when I got to the Korea Pusan mission, he was one of the APs. Oh, fantastic. So, so you actually so, yeah. go way back with this guy. Yeah, although I don't, I don't know that he remembers me, which oh, okay. is okay. <laughs> it was him and Elder Forsyth were our, were our APs when I showed up. Um, fantastic. Um, okay, so I just thought that this might be an interesting one to talk about because I want to talk about something that I that came up a bit during general conference. Yeah, and I it was just interesting to me too because I don't really know how to approach it within Latter Day Saint theology and discipline and conversation, and that is the tradition. Can you, and that is um, well, it's very similar to this lesson, right? This is yeah. about civil disobedience. Right, which is the way I would describe it is we're gonna it's, we're gonna talk later about the difference between civil disobedience and conscientious. Oh, geez, I should have practiced this. Conscientious objection. Conscientious. Consci, yes, yeah, you're good. Conscientious <laughs> objection. It's a funny word. Conscientious objection. We're gonna talk about that, but I actually want to talk about activism in general. Okay. Right, which I think is not covered in this article. But did come up a bit in conference. Yeah, I would say the article only covers activism when it approaches legal boundaries. Yeah, so that's really interesting to me. Um, and uh, I really, so first of all, I really enjoyed conference. I thought this was a very good general conference. People, okay, so if you don't know what general conference is, it's our meeting that we do in the church every six months. All of our apostles and prophets give talks. It's Unless they have COVID. Unless they have COVID. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't have a um, like a clear rubric to judge conferences by. Yeah. But um, I thought this was a good one also. I think a good rubric. Better than average. Better than average, right. For whatever. Um, that, that sounds like they're usually under average. But no matter what, what, no matter what group of things you take, there yeah. must be an average. Yeah. And half of them must be above and half of them must be below. <laughs> That's true. It's just basic math. <laughs> and, including and revelations. Above. From from the Lord. That's right. That's just that's just how math works. <laughs> um, I I had one quick comment before we go back to the lesson. Sure. That um, you know, Elder, uh, our President Nelson, right? He only gets to speak to us a few times a year, right? Mm-hmm. And he didn't speak at all in the Saturday session. So less than usual, I think. And he didn't speak very much in the Sunday sk- session. And and what was the thing that he used his time to talk about? Uh, to be good people. Uh, specifically. Yeah online yes yeah and, uh, i mean maybe it's just because i then went online but it got a lot of positive reviews yeah I and mean, a lot of people looking at themselves rather than pointing outwards which i was surprised yeah by. i just think about all the stuff he could have talked about right yeah and this is the thing that he decided to focus on is just be nicer to each other online no matter what your perspectives or persuasions are yeah i thought that was really cool i was talking to a sister last night in our ward who um Watch that session. It was the yeah. only session she watched. And I believe it's the first time she's watched a session of General Conference in decades. Uh-huh. And she was uh, very taken with that talk. I thought it was very impressive and very good and very moving. I think we should link to it in the show notes. Let's do it. We've already talked about it enough that it would be a shame not to. <laughs> Hopefully there's something to link to. Um, that's right. Okay, so here we go. Um, let's, talk, let's talk about the law. 
the oh you mean like the law of the land yeah okay should we go philosophy 101 first I don't know where you're... Yeah, okay. What is the law? What is... <laughs> yeah. Come on, give me a that civics... That sounds like it needs a rabbinical answer. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm very intimidated by this question, to be honest. <laughs> I love finding questions that yeah. specifically, like, make you intimidated. Yeah, this is right? one. Yeah. What is the law? Like, I'm, I'm very... Um, I don't know. <clears throat> if we need to get a lawyer on the show, I guess. Yeah. Maybe that's what we should have done. Well, that's, that's the question, right? Are we talking about the law, um, you know, on the books? Mm-hmm. What Congress and our and our legislature and so forth have decided have our, our state legislature, I mean, um, what they've decided the law is. Are we talking about deeper law, um, natural law? Uh, are we talking about law in some kind of rabbinical sense, which it's very Old Testament and God is the law? Um, so the twelfth article of faith. We believe in being subject to kings, presidents, rulers, and magistrates in obeying, honoring, and sustaining the law. And this is how um, Nathan Ullman starts the talk, starts the yeah. uh, starts the discussion, right? Uh, whatever the law is, we believe in in sustaining <laughs> yeah, it and honoring yeah, it. Pro-law. <laughs> if I got nothing else from this article, yeah. it was an awesome history lesson about times when we have gone closer and farther away from this principle. Yeah, coach. it was also interesting to me, um, there's quite a bit in the Doctrine and Covenants that he uses to temper the Articles of Faith statement, and it was weird reading it because I used to know those scriptures really well, and I had forgotten all of them except for the um, Article of Faith. I haven't really thought about this question much um, in terms of what the canon has to say about it, and I had managed to forget all these important scriptures in the Doctrine and Covenants. Well, what is the question? Remember, every every episode this yeah. season is dedicated to a yes or no question, right? And what is the question here? Well, I guess, I, I don't know how to phrase this yes or no question, but, but what is the boundary between um, obeying and sustaining the law, which we're in favor of, uh-huh. versus um, what about when the law is unjust? Right. I actually think that it's in his conclusion paragraph. There is no simple answer to the question of whether or not Latter-day Saints may engage in civil disobedience. Ah, there you go. There's a yes or no question. I think I think so. Yeah, and... Um, Which is similar to what you said. Yeah. I think it's a really important question. Um, and he has some interesting historical examples, some of which he barely touches on. Like, he mentions Ghana just in passing, and I, I think that's one of the most interesting examples in church history. Maybe we'll talk about it. Um, I think we should. And he talks about polygamy, which is a really good example. Though I, I, it didn't pop immediately into my head. It sure didn't for me too. Um, it should have, but it yeah. didn't. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and and I was really glad that he talked about Helmut Huebner. Um, it, it was kind of deep in the article. I was worried he wasn't going to come up because I think he's a really important case study. And I wish he had been talked about. And I, really, my only complaint is that I wish the article had been five to ten pages longer. Mm-hmm. Um, I I didn't have any problems with it other than I would have loved to have delved a bit deeper into some of the historical examples. Instead, we spent most of our time with polygamy, which was fruitful, Yeah, but I would have loved a couple more data points. Okay, well, this part of the of the article is what really helped me understand the difference between conscientious objection and civil disobedience, okay. right? Which we should point out that, that Nate says they are... Um, I love how you say Nate, because yeah. you are on a first-name basis. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like we are, even though I'm really 
fairly convinced he doesn't know who I am. Um, like, I think he knows my name by now, and I think I think it's come up in passing a couple times, like our relationship, but I, I think he does not remember me, which, okay. is, which is fine. I'm not, it's fine. Like, he was a much older missionary than me. We didn't really associate that much. He said a couple really interesting... His dad was a church historian, okay. and so he had a couple really interesting... Like, he saw... His dad showed him the Cedar Stone long before any of the rest of us ever really? So, so he had, like, a couple really interesting stories that... Which one? Fixed him in my memory, whereas I was just a fresh kid off the bus. The, the chocolate one? Uh, the chocolate one, yeah, I yeah. believe, yeah. Um, what was the point? Oh, oh, so so Nate, uh-huh. as I said, uh-huh. he <laughs> he distinguishes between civil disobedience and conscientious, conscientious objection. See, it's hard. It's hard to say. <laughs> but uh, he does point out that they're kind of squishy definitions. Very regardless. squishy. Yeah, there's no clear lines between them, and they're not really strictly defined by there's no there's no body of conscientious objection which defines actually that's kind of untrue the department of defense has a very strict definition okay which maybe what, we can talk about later why don't we talk about it now you want what, to talk about it now what's their definition um, of okay give me just a second it's funny that it's the department of defense yeah i'm well because specifically conscientious conscientious <laughs> you gotta leave in all these mispronunciations <laughs> in the edit um conscientious objection when it comes to whether or not you will be drafted Okay. Which to me is maybe the most interesting kind. Yeah. Um, so this comes, uh, I'm, I'm quoting, I didn't look this up on the Department of Defense website or anything. I'm quoting an article in Dialogue. Um, hey, hey, yeah. hey, what's our relationship with Dialogue? <laughs> We're a Aaron? proud member of the Dialogue <laughs> Podcasting Network. We sure are. Anyway, so this article is called The Restoration of Conscientious Objection by Ron Madsen, who um, is also uh, one of the founders of the erstwhile Mormon Worker website. Um, so he's a, he's a crazy radical Mormon. Um, this was originally published winter 2018. Uh, so the Department of Defense, three criteria to be a conscientious objector. A, who is conscientiously opposed, the person, the person I should say, uh, in order to be a conscientious objector, that individual must be A, conscientiously opposed to participation in war in any form. Mm-hmm. B, their opposition must be based on a moral, ethical, or religious belief. Not just, like, fear, for I instance. Did. Okay, um, yeah, sure. C, their position must be fi- firm, fixed, sincere, and deeply held. Wow, now, this I, is real nebulous. Yeah, so, but it's also potentially impossible to qualify, yeah. right? Um, our friend Tom, our mutual friend Tom in the Berkeley Ward, mm-hmm. I was talking to him about this just a couple Sundays ago, and he said that he was interested in being a conscientious objector uh, in Vietnam, mm-hmm. but when he went down to fill out the paperwork, um, he had to, for, so for A, conscientiously opposed to participation war in any form, you had to believe, he was told, there is no possible way, no set of circumstances in which war is appropriate. Huh. Like zero. Yeah. Zero options for that ever. And he didn't feel that he believed Vietnam was unjust, but he didn't feel he could say there's no such thing. Like, there's never a time to go to war. I mean, we've got a Book of Mormon that's full of war. Yeah. And this has um, been changed since um, since his time. Uh, I don't know the dates of these Supreme Court cases, but um, our article tells us that the Supreme Court later clarified in Gillette versus United States that... Um, I must have been a person instead of a shaving company. I'm guessing. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe they were mad that the soldiers weren't shaving enough. Um, 
so willingness to use self-defense, this is part of the quotation from the Supreme Court, willingness to use force and self-defense in defense of home and family or in defense against immediate acts of aggressive violence toward other persons in the community um, has not been regarded as inconsistent with the claim of conscientious objection to war as such. So the Supreme Court has found that like, if you could be a conscientious objector to war, and yet if um, Mexico invades tomorrow as... Um, certain people in the public sphere seem to believe this couldn't happen. Uh-huh. Um, if, if you, you could, could be okay with fighting back without losing, without was, and still be a conscientious objector. And then the other one um, was there could be a theocratic exception. In other words, like you could get a direct relation from God to engage with a specific war while still being a conscientious objector for other wars. So those two, um, those two caveats have been, from the Supreme Court. From the Supreme Court. They used the word direct revelation? Uh, th- that part was not a direct quotation. He's he's paraphrasing here, so okay. I'm, I'm not sure. Interesting. We will put the link to the article, and you can follow all the footnotes if you want to know exactly. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because the, the use... That is a very specific definition of conscientious objector, yes. right? And what it does is it says that um, I don't want to be involved in war... Right, mm-hmm. I think that it's wrong, um, and it is. And since the government is doing it, it's legal, right? Yes. And um, therefore, they can, they should, and then they. But I do not believe that their that law that enables them to do war is good. Yes, and that's the law. I'm, I'm objecting to. <laughs> I think I followed that, but if anybody on the show is a fan of diagramming sentences, I'd love to see that sentence diagrammed. <laughs> okay, what am I trying to say? What I'm trying to say is that um, is that the, what are you objecting to? You're objecting. You're not just objecting to the war. You're objecting to a specific law, right? And you will not obey that law. In this case, the law was: if you're drafted, you must go to war. So, yeah. And a, being an objector here is against a specific law. Now, the one that's in the thing that you just described is the law of the draft. Right. And but apparently are, the law has built in escape clause for conscientious objectors, which makes it no longer illegal. Ah. Although it's kind of hard to qualify. Yeah. Um, while we're on the subject, yeah. um, on our, on my, my favorite, uh, and only really <laughs> British trivia quiz show, <laughs> <laughs> they did an, they did a show on war. Yeah. As a comedy quiz show, it was very interesting. Which, which quiz show? QI. I've quite, watched that a few times. Quite interesting. It's great. And we've actually had a clip of QI on the episode. Oh. I didn't think you might not have known that because how often do you listen to our episodes? I listen to maybe 10% of our episodes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, but anyway, Stephen Fry began the, ep- began the episode with um, a quote. Um, here's what Stephen Fry said. In all seriousness... Given that more than 100 million people were killed in wars during the 20th century, that the total number of people ever killed in wars could be as many as 1 billion, that Albert Einstein described war as a cloak that covers acts of murder, and Anton de Saint-Exupéry as a disease like typhus. And then he then asked, why did Adolf Hitler have such a silly mustache? (laughs) <laughs> which break broke the ice. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. So I can I totally buy it like being an objector. Yeah, to, I mean the more I think about it, the more I think it's the right case in almost every case. Yeah. 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 Um 
But this is not the only thing that you could conscientiously object to, unless you wanted to spend more time on this topic. Um, yeah, I do, actually. Oh, okay. It's okay. Yeah. Um, so just after, I'm quoting the article again, just after the United States and its allied forces, not, not sorry, not the article we read from BYU Studies, the dialogue one by Madsen that I mentioned. Okay. Just after the United States and its allied forces invaded Afghanistan and were making a case to invade Iraq, then Apostle Russell and Nelson in the October General Conference taught that Section 98, which I hope we'll talk about more also, requires us to renounce war and proclaim peace. Picking up on this address, CNN reported that the LDS Church had issued a strong anti-war message regarding current hostilities, Afghanistan and the proposed invasion of Iraq. The Church's public relations department immediately responded that the talk had been misinterpreted as being applicable to current hostilities and that the Church itself as such had no responsibility for those policies other than urging its members to fully to render loyalty to their country. In the following spring, um, President Hinckley, in what some interpret as a counterpoint, to Elder Nelson's talk, um, said, Modern Revelation states that we are to renounce war and proclaim peace. But he then went on to say that um, under the direction of our respective national leaders and subject to the laws of our government, uh, everyone, especially soldiers, those in the armed services, are under obligation to their respective governments to execute the will of the sovereign. When they joined the military, they entered into a contract by which they are presently bound and to which they have dutifully responded. And he, he went on, I kind of remember this talk, he went on to talk about how um, part of the reason is that we have to assume that our, our political and military leaders have more intelligence than we do, uh-huh. and we need to trust their judgment, mm-hmm. um, which is interesting. Uh, I had forgotten about this. I don't remember Elder Nelson's talk. I kind of remember Elder Hink- or President Hinckley's, um, but it feels like another case that there's been a lot of hay made about... Uh, President Hinckley embracing the term Mormon at the same time President Nelson uh, was trying to reject it and um, and has more thoroughly rejected it since becoming president himself. Um, it's just, it's interesting to compare these two things. Um, but as a whole, I I'm I really the more I read the Book of Mormon in particular, the more I feel that we just have to reject war, like, except for in really remarkable circumstances. And Nazis are an obvious example. <laughs> um, we have to reject war. It's the right thing to do. It rarely leads to righteous outcomes. Yeah, I think that I, I mean, is the Book of Mormon anti-war? I think so. Okay. Yeah, and and um, and I also think there are moments where like um, Mormon praises Captain Moroni, for instance, which seem a bit more ambiguous. But in the broader context, I just there's a lot of war in the book, but there's I just so don't see it being po- war positive, not at all. I remember um, on my mission, one of my companions, great guy, quote, he said, when he said, oh man, I'm getting to Alma, right? Which is the chapter, uh-huh. which is the book with most of the war stuff in it. Yeah. I love Alma. I'm just really excited to get into it. It's like, whoa, yeah, Alma, here I come. <laughs> and um, and I kind of agreed because um, there, you know, it's there's a lot of really fun kind of battles into scriptures well, and things and like that. War is good at revealing personality. Yeah. Like the characters in Alma are some of the most richly drawn and part of it is because of the circumstances they're in. Mm-hmm. Now I don't really feel like that. I kind of want to just skip the war chapters when I get to the Book of Mormon. Mm-hmm. I, I don't. When I, I, when I, <laughs> I try to read the whole Book of Mormon <laughs> when I read yeah. it. <laughs> but yeah, it kind of bums me out. But I, I think I agree. I think there is a, an anti-war mess undertone. Right, because the end yeah. of it is like, look what look what happens. <laughs> well, this is interesting. It's not really where I thought we would go with this show, um, but it is conscientious, conscientious objection 
is this is what it is. So what is that term, I think, in general usage, and I haven't tested this theory, but I believe it's almost always referring to whether or not you fight in a war. That's generally how we use the term. Certainly wasn't the case in 1880. No, maybe not. Because <laughs> <laughs> this is the this was one of the things I really got out of this article is how many Mormons in 1880 went to jail, right? Yeah. Because, because they were polygamists, right? We did a, we did in our first season a, a series of episodes on polygamy, right? I feel we've like we've done we, a few over the years. Yeah. I feel like we came we've come down as not as not um, not really big fans. Oh, you're showing me a cool plot. Um, Are you familiar with Google's Ingram Viewer? No, I ha I'm not. So it shows the usage of a word over time. Uh-huh. Um, as you can see, the numbers are very small. Okay, so what Eric here is showing me is a plot of the usage of these terms over time, right? And so there's a big spike uh, in, in the, for the term conscientious objector, as you can imagine, during World War I, during World War II, and during the Vietnam War, right? But those terms have really leveled out, and they aren't really being used as much. Instead, civil disobedience, which also spiked at different points during the last 150 years. A lot of the same points, but not, not always. Not all of the same points, but a lot of them, has stayed. Yeah, where the other ones have the kind of trailed, years, tra years. trailed off. 40 years. And this is this is like um, book data, I presume. This is like because it goes back. To yes, the 1800s. it's from their corpus, which I, I think is mostly books, maybe in, and and um, newspapers and such. Yeah. So it's it's really interesting. So that kind of leads into um, a different the difference between conscientious objection and civil disobedience, right? Yes. Um... The thing that I kind of gathered was that one is individual. Right. It's like yeah. inward facing and not like it's not a demand to change things. Right. Conscientious objector is like I as an individual am not going to participate in this. But you do you. Yeah. Right? Consequences are not the issue here. I'm just going to stand aside. It's kind of like saying somebody has got to fight World War Two. I just it's not me. Yeah, I'm, I'm a pacifist. And um, so on that QI episode, they yeah. had a Quaker pacifist on the panel. Oh, really? An actual Quaker pacifist. Who was also a comedian? Who um, I don't know if she was a comedian, but they, she was funny. <laughs> <laughs> but they brought her on, and it was this old lady. And her comment was, because um, someone made the same comment, yeah. when the Nazis come, you've got to go to war. And her comment was, "What? What do you think the Quaker response?" I, I think that, I think she would say no. I, I don't. I would. Well, that's not what she said. Oh, okay. Um, but she said, um, "If we had just done something about it before, that's a really good point. Then we wouldn't have had to get to this far." Oh my gosh! Can I can I quote Madsen again? Would it be okay? Yeah. So this is about Section ninety eight, um, which is. Let's talk talk to me a bit about DNC ninety eight. Yeah. So DNC ninety eight. I'll I'll read to you the introduction. That as in the scriptures right now. Revelation given through Joseph Smith the prophet at Kirtland, Ohio, 1833. This revelation came in consequence of the persecution upon the saints in Missouri. Increased settlement of church members in Missouri troubled some other settlers who felt threatened by the saints' numbers, political and economic influence, and cultural and religious differences. In July, 1833, a mob destroyed church property, tarred and feathered two church members, and demanded that the saints leave Jackson County. Although some news of the problems in Missouri had no doubt reached the prophet in Kirtland, 900 miles away, the seriousness of the situation could not have been known could have been known to him at this date only by revelation and so the section i'm most interested in is is verses 16 to 18 which are um 
reduced to these five words, renounce war and proclaim peace. So back to the Madsen article, uh, he suggests like when we went to war as a country with Iraq and Afghanistan, did we follow the um, instructions as found in section 98? So these are the questions he says we should have asked ourselves before we agreed to support this war as Latter-day, American Latter-day Saints. One, did we as a faith specifically renounce, the word renounce is a quote from 98, did we renounce the invasion of Afghanistan or Iraq? Did we renounce it? Two, did we renounce those voices that called for vengeance and promised retribution? Three, did we accept either Afghanistan's or Iraq's own standard of peace when they claimed that they had not attacked us, nor would they ever attack us in the future? Again, these are all from section 98. Next, did we accept their prayer for peace and forgive them 70 times 7? Wait, you're, you, these are quotes from 98. Right, 98. they're either quotes or paraphrases from 98 applied to this specific set of circumstances. And then the last one is, did we consider living a higher law and not seeking retribution? Mm-hmm. Those are really good questions. And as someone in who was an adult at this time, um, we moved really fast. Darn it. Eric. I mean, Iraq happened so quickly. You're asking me to make an opinion here. <laughs> Iraq, I, I didn't have a newspaper when Iraq happened. I didn't have internet at my house. Uh, there were no smartphones then. Um, my only internet access was on the rare occasions I went to the public library or used my the work, uh, the, the the computer at my work during lunch. 2003, 2004. Right. I know uh, this was, yes, that's right. 2000, yes. And um, so I was, it was the least news aware part of my life since I was like 13. Um, and one day I came to work and all my colleagues were talking about, oh, I didn't have television either, I should mention. Um, <laughs> all we're talking about the invasion of Iraq. And I was confused because, like, what are you talking about, Iraq? Like, why would we invade what, Iraq? has nothing to do. Because since I graduated, so between 2001 and my graduation from college, uh, when I was still news savvy, um, I knew Afghanistan's relationship to 2001, but as far as I knew, Iraq had nothing to do with it. Why did we invade Iraq? It came out of nowhere for me. Mm-hmm. Um, which Because you missed all the drumbeats. Right, I missed all the drumbeats. And so having missed the drumbeats, it seemed crazy. And I, I just couldn't believe what I was hearing. I just like, why? Why is this happening? I don't get it. Like, are you? I didn't think they were serious at first, but then it was clear they were serious. I yeah. didn't understand why it had happened. Um, and the fact that that's possible in in a compressed amount of time between the invasion of Iraq and when I graduated from college a few not that long earlier maybe a year earlier um suggests that we didn't go through all those steps mm-hmm. yeah I think I mean uh, history has proven that we should have gone through those steps yeah. I think, <laughs> I think <laughs> so yeah <laughs> if you don't mind me making an opinion <laughs> yeah I mean I, I recognize that we know more now than they did then but all the same it is really hard to explain to people who weren't to Gen Z to, to Gen Z. It is really hard to explain this to them. Yeah, the circumstances in December twenty in December two thousand one. Yeah, how it's... how how crazy. Yeah, we were. Yeah, as, yeah. as a country. I mean, how, how did the Patriot Act ever get passed? It's just bananas. We all knew it was a bad idea, but we're like, at this moment, we are going to reject Benjamin Franklin and sacrifice our safety for our liberty, <laughs> or our liberty for our safety, rather. Yeah. Um, we didn't. We didn't hesitate, and, and it really, 
it, it's part of the reason I'm so anti-war now yeah. is because I recognize how difficult it is to be rational about this. I'm sure it was the same after Pearl Harbor. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, I was not there, mm-hmm. but I've read enough to know that most of the country was isolationist before then. Yeah. And yeah, Roosevelt had been trying to get people to change their minds slowly but surely, but yeah, Pearl Harbor changed everything really quickly. Darned if we didn't love polygamy as a church. <laughs> <laughs> back to back to uh, the NATO article. We're going to tie all this, all this together. Don't, don't I have, think it does all have tie faith, together. Have faith, dear listener. Yeah. But let's... let's it really um, does. I, I can... Okay. The, the conclusion of that part was that um, this is one use of the phrase conscientious objection, right? To be anti-war. Probably the most common one, but... The term can be used in a lot of different ways. And so the argument here is that we were using it in the 1880s because of polygamy. So so we did, in our early seasons of this show, talk about polygamy. We did several episodes. We focused one on the book, The Ghost of Eternal Polygamy. Yes. Um, which was fantastic by... Carolyn Pearson. We, I think we, I think you could safely say that we've... That we're not big fans. <laughs> polygamy, no. Yeah, I've, I've been convinced that polygamy... I, I just don't believe it was ever inspired. Well, let's just... That's where it landed. But, well, re, but that's not the point. The hold, that, word, hold that thought yeah. for a second. I don't want to talk about whether or not it was inspired. I, that's not the point today. Yeah. Because I think that's a really interesting conversation. The book would argue pretty strongly yeah. that it wasn't, and, right? And we've talked about this in the past. Yeah. We don't need to rehash it now. My, the point, though, is that the church thought it was... Just yeah. and it was right, official doctrine. and it was official doctrine, and you then people need to be doing it. Yeah, right? and we wanted to. What was the quote from the article that we wanted to um, mimic our ancestors Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? Right, all that, right? all that stuff. And um, we were so into it, and people, people were on board, man. Like they, they were, they were. This was their religion. It was. They went to jail. It was a huge part of their identity. It's like if, um, I, I mean, this is ludicrous. It wouldn't happen. But it's, it's like if the U.S. government said, from now on, all adult Americans need to smoke one cigarette and drink a pint of liquor every week. Yeah. Like that's the law now. Yeah. In order to support these <laughs> industries, everyone has to do this. Like that's the equivalent. Like it's such a deep part of our identity. Yeah. That. Um, well, how, it's, how it's we more it? than that. It's like. What happened? Like, imagine they passed that law right now, and all yeah. the Mormons refused to obey it. Yeah, right? it's not just that they passed that law; it's just the government. It's like we're the only people who don't we were drink. the only people yeah. who, who who weren't <laughs> who, drink, who weren't doing yeah. these things, right? <laughs> and then they passed increasingly strict penalties. Yes, year by year by year. It was very focused on Latter-day Saints. specifically on Latter Day Saints. Wasn't affecting anybody else. And it was there was this amazing quote. Okay. Um, from it's more like uh, a law against garments. Maybe. Yeah. Um, let me just quote this. The newly formed Republican Party declared polygamy one of the twin relics of barbarism. Yes. Where yeah, the yeah. other was slavery that had to be excluded from the U- U.S. territories. Yes. Okay. Our, our occasional reminder that one of the founding principles of the Republican Party is that Mormons are terrible. <laughs> but we're good at forgiving, so... <laughs> um, so that was in 1856, apparently. That was conscientious object um, objection. Yes. I got the first word right, but not the second. <laughs> it's um, challenging. <laughs> so 
but it started to, to go into civil disobedience. Right, because you, it's nice to say that I'm conscientiously objecting. Um, I'm only just making a decision for myself and it doesn't affect everybody else. Ultimately, that's not how a society works. Everybody affects everybody else. And if a whole bunch of people are conscientiously objecting, it's not really in any measurable way different from what we're calling civil disobedience. So the penalties got stricter and stricter and stricter until they put yeah. people in jail, entire families. Right. And before it even got to this point, before a law was even passed, there's a great line from Hyperbolic Brigham Young, <laughs> yeah. like saying, well, they're going to have to spend $300 million. And keep in mind, that's like 1850 money or something. Yeah. Uh, $300 million to build a prison to hold us all. They'll have to put a cap on top of the, of the um, Rocky Mountains <laughs> to build a prison. Um, Which, yeah, and that, I mean... That's the point, right? That's how Gandhi or Martin Luther King, that, that's why civil disobedience is an effective form of changing the world. Because you can't put every single person in prison. Yeah, that's the point, yeah. Uh, it didn't work. We did not win. <laughs> no, no, we got, we got hammered. Yeah. Which um, Eventually, the final threat was disincorporation of the church. Yeah. And then uh, we gave it up. And then we finally listened to the Lord and mm-hmm. stopped. Mm-hmm. Okay, <laughs> that's a controversial statement. That's okay. That's. I think it's fine that you say that. Yeah. It is. I think it's fine that you say that. It is a putting a layer of interpretation over what happened. Yeah. Right. I think you might easily be right. Um, it just um what hap- what the the record is that um we had a revelation to stop doing it. Yeah. And then we were accepted as members of the union. It is interesting <laughs> that. While we were in America, the United States of America, we were breaking the law. But were we breaking the law in Utah? Because yeah, we weren't a Mexico. state yet. Well, I mean, this brings us back to old what's-his-face, Thoreau, Henry David Thoreau. Okay. Who um, allegedly coined the term civil disobedience, but as we see from the Engram viewer, it did exist before him. And there was a spike before his essay. Hmm. Um, but one of the reasons he didn't want to pay taxes is because he didn't want to support the Mexican-American War, which was... a a naked land grab, like blatantly, that's what it was. Yeah. Um, and the states were kind of in favor of that because even though we had escaped from the United States, uh, we also kind of wanted to be Americans because we were used to it as a whole. Yeah. Um, and it was better than being Mexicans, I guess, even though Mexico had left us alone. <laughs> so my history said, teacher said that we took, we stole like the two thirds of Mexico. Like, yeah, the, I mean, the there's part- hardly any people there, but yes, land wise, yes, that's what we did. Never mind that, you know, before Mexico, other people had lived there. <laughs> yeah. So, that's a good point. But um, Thoreau said, wouldn't, didn't, was refusing to pay taxes, right? Yes. That would not fly today. Uh, no. You can't, no. You that's... can't object to the U.S. government. This, I kind of, this made me laugh a little bit because uh-huh. it's in this article. You can't tell the U.S. government, I'm not going to pay taxes. Yeah. Because if I'm a conscientious could... objector. And if you could, like, a lot of people suggested, what if I could pay my taxes but say it doesn't go to these certain things because I want to pay for roads, but I don't want to pay for the military. I've heard that a lot from people. Yeah. Well, great. But imagine if we could all do that. Like, if there's an additional form you could just add to your 1040. Sounds like a nightmare. And say what you could. I mean, I'm I'm in the government. I get paid by the federal government. Yeah, a lot of people wouldn't want to pay for you. Or me, for that matter. Well, it's just a, it would be a bureaucratic nightmare. No, it, it can never function. Um. Okay, so, so so civil disobedience, of course, then picked up, um, especially in the 1950s because of civil rights. That, I think, is really 
Like if you had asked me what civil disobedience was yeah. before I read this article, I would have said I would have used the civil rights movement. I think as, that's my first go-to example as, as my example. Sit-ins and um, riding the bus. Black Americans riding yeah. the bus and when they weren't um, allowed to technically. That seems very much like civil disobedience. And I, you would be hard-pressed, I hope, to find people who think that they were wrong to do so. Even in, I mean, but in our lifetime, I our mean, lifetime. it was easy, it was easy to spin. I, I, I have heard older relatives of mine who are now dead talking about Martin Luther King as, you know, as a, as a communist and a red spy, which were rumors intentionally spread because, uh, you know, they're attacking the social order and the way things are and it's not the way to go about it. But I think now with the, you know, 60 years that have passed, I think that we're better at recognizing that it was a good thing. It was worth doing. It's always easier to say that about the past. What was the church's relationship to this? Oh, it depends. Like, um, you take someone like Ezra Jeff Benson. He was appalled and it was evil and communist for sure. Um, I, I mean, we read the David O. McKay book, right? Yeah. There were plenty of people who were sympathetic to it. Somebody like Hubie Brown was supportive. Um, There's a lot of mixed feelings and largely the church tried to stay out of it. Um, I think in part because our own policies put us in a bad position. Uh, it was hard for us to be the good guys. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, I've um, been thinking about my own last five years, right? Yeah. We've been doing the show for about that time, if you can, if you can, believe, if you can believe it. We just do this 19 more times and it's been a century. <laughs> a right. face and hat. That's right. One of the things I was really interested in when we started the show was working through some of my own feelings about the church about yeah. some of the policies and the history that i didn't understand right and some of them i'm still not very happy about but oddly enough this whole history of racism is is not one of them mm-hmm. i actually um it used to really bother me that it, t- it took us till 1978 right and it used to be and you know i hated it right and i really feel like just accepting the fact that the church had racist policies yeah (laughs) right and just calling it what it is and and just and if that upsets you just remembering everybody (laughs) was racist yeah (laughs) um with accepting of course some nice beautiful exceptions throughout history um i'm not happy with the state we're in of course I'm not, I'm not saying that this is a, not an issue, but to me, this is the 1978 thing doesn't prevent me from like participating as a member of the church. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? <laughs> it's not one of those issues that would have eventually. And and part of it is because it's 2023, right? And it's way in past history, right? I just wish it had been before I was born. Yeah, it's so close. It's just, just a few years so earlier. So close. It would be that much better. <laughs> I feel like I didn't explain myself well there. Um, Let me restate. Okay. Um, Ultimately, there are issues in any organization that are troubling, including God's own church. Uh, But sunshine and paying attention um, help us contextualize those things and and, um, understand them. I should say, it makes me sad thinking about the history right thinking about the church that we could have been yeah right if we were 
abolitionist in the same way that Joseph Smith was. Yeah. If we had, um, right, that's a famous aspect of Joseph it's, Smith. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, there, there's, uh, I was recently reading something, I can't remember what it is, we'll add it to the show notes, um, suggesting that we've put on some rose colored glasses looking at Joseph Smith's, the, the Nauvoo era, mm-hmm. um, wishing that it was even more liberal than it actually was. But uh-huh. it's undoubtedly true that things went a worse direction. Yeah. Yeah. Afterwards, racially speaking. Uh huh. But, um, yeah, I ha- but yeah, I mean, that's what I was just going to say about that. It's just it's it's been it's been a journey learning history. History learning history helped is what yes. I'm trying to say. It helped me understand why people did what they did, even if I think it was terrible. Right? Tell your governor. Yeah. Wait, my governor? No, I mean, <laughs> I'm, to people who listen in states where they want to erase history. Okay, <laughs> those people should tell their governor what you just said. <laughs> The kind, the kind of meandering path that I wanted to take through this conversation was to look at the history of the church's relationship between, between civil disobedience and um, essentially the law, right? I wanted to look at the church's relationship yeah. to the law. Um, when has the church followed the law? When has it not followed the law? When has it told its members mm-hmm. to not follow the law? And when has it told its members to follow the law? And it's... And why and where and stuff like that. This is not an example from the article, but one that I've thought about a lot um, is the BYU um, Jerusalem Center, which is on the Mount of Olives and is a popular location for young Latter-day Saints to go study for a semester. And one of the rules is you cannot do any proselytizing yeah. while you're there. You can't even talk about the church. Um, and as a young jingoistic Mormon, that really bothered me and I still don't love it. Um, but the church has arrived on this idea that it is more important to keep people safe than to, um, jump up and down over principles. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's a debatable argument. Um, but it leads but, right into the conversation about um, the person that you mentioned before. It's a valid argument, too. Yeah, uh, Helmuth Hubner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, who's one of the great heroes in church history. And we're spending an entire episode on sometime, perhaps. Well, give me a brief summary, because I, I didn't get enough of a summary from this article. I, which is fine. The article is trying to make a point and move on. Yeah. But I don't know much about um, Hubner. So, uh, great kid. He was executed, beheaded by the Nazis when he was 17. One of the last people they executed. And by executed, I mean... Um, I'm, I'm excluding people who are mass executed for no good reason, right? I'm talking about people who were executed because they committed a crime. Broke some law. Right. And, um, he was 17 and part of the reason he was executed is because he, um, he was the youngest person executed by the Nazis. Um, again, I'm using the word executed in a specific way, ignoring the concentration camps. Plenty of people younger than him were killed in the concentration camps. Um, but one of the reasons he was executed is because he refused to um, uh, admit that anyone helped him. And so he was listening to BBC on the radio and learning the truth about what was going on and making pamphlets. And he made copies using, uh, I, I believe he used the branch's coffee machine. I think they had a coffee machine. The branch of the church. The branch of the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there in, I think he was in Berlin. I should maybe check that. Anyway, he makes these copies. They, he and his friends are handing them out. And um, ultimately, he's executed. Um, in the process, his branch president, who's an enthusiastic Nazi, excommunicates him for not obeying and sustaining the law. Um, 
most of the members of the church are just sort of keeping their heads down and trying, and, and maybe rightly so, right? As we were talking about, maybe so. Like, um, Jehovah's Witnesses do not always land on this side, right? They, they generally land on the side of um, do be out about your faith regardless of safety. And so Jehovah's Witnesses end up, they're on, you know, the list up there with, you know, Jews and, and Jews yeah, and homosexuals that, you know, they went to concentration camps. So that could have very easily been Latter-day Saints. And it's hard to say that, you know, those ignominious deaths, heroic they, they may have been, were worth it. Um, I mean, how do you, how do you say that? Yeah. Um, but Helen Hubner really believed in doing what we, I think we all agree now, was the right thing. And to speak out against the Nazis and try to stop them and do what he could from his position of, you know, um, a 17 year old relative kid. safety. Uh, yeah. Okay. Sure. Yeah. And, um, and what did it get him? It got him excommunicated and executed. And later he, he was, um, the church brought him back into full fellowship after his death and reinstore, restall, reinstall, restate it, re, restore, it? restored Rest- all his blessings of like, um, you know, all his ordinances and so forth. And nowadays I think that people who know who he is regard him as a hero mm-hmm. and he did it because of his faith. Like that's, it, he was raised as a Latter-day Saint and he had the sort of principles embedded in him that I want my kids to have embedded in them. And uh, he did the right thing and, and now he's dead. Yeah. So, it's a heavy episode. Apologies. Yeah. Um, but it's I, I, you can't talk about this stuff without going into the history. And... You have to consider what the worst case scenario is. Yeah. Uh, before you can decide what the right choice is. The, the, the one thing that you mentioned there that was really caught my caught my eye which was um, obeying, honoring, and sustaining the law, how it yeah. was used in this negative connotation by this branch president, right? And I just think that's really interesting. The 12th article of faith, there's history behind it, mm-hmm. right? And some of that history included something, a wild fact that I didn't know, not specifically the 12th article of faith, but DNC 134, mm-hmm. right? Which is another one of these article uh, sections which is all about um being a good citizen being a good citizen yeah. and obeying the law right actually written by oliver cowdery and accepted into canon while joseph smith wasn't there yeah. oh what's the deal with that i'm, I'm not sure what the details are so. <laughs> i just thought that was really interesting but anyway but yeah obey, one of the reasons behind it was all this persecution right please we Don't are good us. citizens yeah <laughs> Yeah, and again, like, who are we to judge? Yeah. Like, nobody's threatening to execute us right now. Um, and it is right to stay alive. Yeah. Right, you were going to mention Ghana. I was going to mention Ghana. Um, we'll include a link to the excellent, though not terribly long, but but very good Wikipedia article on this, on the freeze, as it was called. Um, the church for a while, and it wasn't the only church, but it was... Um, frozen by the government in part because of hey 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 here's another person i'm connected to okay um ed decker is that a name that rings a bell to you negative he's the guy who made the god makers oh no so, that's we should do an episode about the god makers uh, sometime yeah uh <laughs> he used to go to my ward that i was in when i was in high school okay i mean long oh. before i was there up in Idaho. Uh, but there were people who, no 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 in california oh in, in california in tachby and he uh where well, you're gonna get a temple nearby Yes, yeah, Bakersfield <laughs> Temple just announced. Uh, it might, it may end up in Tashby, which for certain reasons might be a better choice. Um, 
Anyway, uh, Ed Decker, he, people still remembered him in the ward when I was there, and he uh-huh. was apparently kind of a weirdo. Okay. Um, but he would come back to Tatchby every once in a while when I was a kid, and he would go um, give talks, usually at the Nazarene Church, and then the Nazarene kids would be mean to the Mormon kids for like a week or two. Oh, after until he until and then people would forget about it again. Anyway, the Godmakers was showing on television in Ghana. Yeah, if you don't know, the Godmakers is a famous like famous anti Mormon. Yeah, like kind of hit piece. Yeah, is that the right way to put it? That, that's totally fair. <laughs> um, yeah, so there's that, but then there's also true things like uh, the church's racial failures, uh, which you, as Wait, you how does this relate to Ghana. the to the freeze? Oh, so anyway, so these are some of the things. And then missionaries had cars, which were like, who are these rich Americans driving around in their oh, cars? Right. And the, the Ghanans buying property. The Ghanans hated all this stuff. Yeah, and then the Godmakers appeared. The government. On TV I, I should say. I should. I said that wrong. Yeah. The specific government at that right. time. Um, and the Presbyterians who have a strong, the, like their number of confirmations and baptisms is going down, and it was blamed in part on foreign churches like us and the Jehovah's Witnesses. And eventually, in 1989, the church was told to stop functioning. Um, and so basically, the church moved entirely into personal things. You just, you did church on your own. Um, <laughs> COVID, COVID-19 style. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Except right. without, without Zoom. Yeah, they were, they were prepared. Uh, but now there is a, a temple there and another one announced. Okay. So, but, um, but yeah, it was rough. It was rough to be, there's a great video. Um, I should find it. The church made a great video about the church in Ghana and the freeze. Um, I showed it when I when I did Doctrine and Covenants as a seminary teacher. I did a thing on the church around the world, and one week we did Ghana. So I'll find I'll find that video. So there they obeyed the law for safety. Well, but or did they? I mean, they weren't hurting anybody to have the sacrament in their own house and to still read the Book of Mormon, and they weren't proselytizing. But the church was not supposed to function. So what exactly what does that mean? I don't. I'm not. I'm not a Ghanaian lawyer. I don't know what it means, but. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the church essentially disappeared. The missionaries went out. The church didn't make a big deal about it. Uh, they just waited it out, and it worked. I mean, maybe we just didn't have a, a long view. It's it's tough. I mean, as mortals in our limited view, it's hard to know what the right thing to do is. It sure is. What an interesting conversation. We've got to use the quote about, um, about justice here from the article. Okay. This is... From U.S. Secretary, okay, so David Kennedy, a former U.S. Treasury Secretary who was tapped by President Kimball to act as a special ambassador to the First Presidency, mm-hmm. wrote, So long as the government permits me to attend church, so long as it permits me to get on my knees in prayer, so long as it permits me to baptize for the remission of sins, so long as it permits me to partake of the, to partake the sacrament of the Lord's Supper and to obey the commandments of the Lord, so long as the government does not force me to commit crime, so long as I am not required to live separately from my wife and children, I think that's a direct reference to polygamy. It does. I mean, it's 100 years ago, but it seems like it is. So long as all of that's true, it's me yeah. paraphrasing a little bit, I can live as a Latter-day Saint within that political system. In practice, this statement means that Latter-day Saints have endorsed legal obedience to odious regimes. Because as long as I, as long as that odious regime does not infringe on my rights to worship as i please then i will obey the law of that regime and is that good (laughs) well and and is it true i mean are you a latter-day saint thoroughly if you can't if you have no access to temple and if you cannot share your faith with other people Um, okay and then well sorry and then those aren't salvific 
Yeah. Maybe, perhaps, but uh, well, this is what then and then um, Nate Oman specifically says that this kind of contradiction is what led to the um, situation with Hubner. Yeah, because ultimately, and, and this is an important thing. We've talked about this a lot, but our church believes both in personal agency in a huge way and doing what you're told in a huge way. Mm-hmm. And there will come circumstances, no matter how good of a person you are, where those things bump into each other in unexpected ways. And you have to, you have to navigate it. And Hubner went one direction and his branch president went another direction. And his branch president probably was genuinely concerned about the safety of the other saints. I mean, that... I don't There's know, man. Great... Once, once you're a Nazi, you can just write off any good motivations, man. I don't think you need to. Uh, I think that's probably true. So. <laughs> I don't need. I don't. I think you can just say write the word bad guy after his name and call it good. <laughs> yeah, I, I, mean, I think so too. Um, Thomas Rogers wrote a really good play about uh, Helmut Hubner called Hubner, which I highly recommend. Uh, but he really does play with the idea of the branch presence, like where's the sympathy in this character, and and part of it is that he's trying to protect the rest of the branch. It's interesting. I, I I can appreciate the artistic merit of wanting to explore that, right? <laughs> My I'm mad at him right now though. <laughs> I, I am too. Like I don't I, I mean, I think he was wrong. But on the other hand, what if he wasn't wrong? What if it was better for one man to perish than for an entire branch to get nuked sent to the concentration camp? Like Yeah. I don't know. I, with, with I really... don't I'm not comfortable saying that, but yeah. uh, I don't know how God thinks. God's kind of a weirdo sometimes. Very hard to, very hard to understand person. <laughs> well, at least in this specific, specific situation, we know what the answer was. Nazis are bad. Nazis are bad. Yeah. That was pretty straightforward. <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, maybe if the branch president had not been so Nazi-philic, mm-hmm. uh, if... It would have worked that as a more interesting. Different. Yeah. yeah. But, but he, he was. Not, he was. And that's why yeah. he excommunicated yeah. him. And I'm sure that precipitated and most of the, the whole weren't. stuff. Most of the saints weren't Nazis. What a, we could just. Why don't we take that little sentence and we can put that as the blurb <laughs> yeah. for the episode. But, and, and we can, we can make that our blurb for uh, the, the Dialogue Podcast Network. Other people advertise our shows. They're most not of the saints weren't Nazis. They're not going to want us back, man. <laughs> Um, okay, so I guess the answer to the question of yeah. does the church endorse civil dis- disobedience is what um, Nate said, is that there's no simple answer. Yeah. Whether or not we... I think that the justice of the law, right, mm-hmm. is, 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 is... If it really disaligned with, is not aligned with God's law... Yeah. Right then, you have, then there's this gray area that immediately opens up. Right, how much not aligned is it? Um, maybe what the what church... is God's law? Right, these are all the questions you have to ask, and it becomes quite tricky. Yeah, uh, what if the church just is maintaining plausible deniability? Well, that's the thing is that there is a lot of situations where the church is in a real pickle. Yeah, right? there's the whole argument that. Um, you know, some one of the reasons that the church does or does not change one of its policies, I'm being deliberately ambiguous here, <laughs> is because it would be horribly rejected by the rest of the world in some other countries, right? And the church sure. is a global church, and yeah. it has to, it has to strike it. God can only move so fast with the people that it has, 
and he needs to bring the entire world along with him. Yeah. Right? And not just change everything all it's at once. It's easy for us who feel like we're ready for something to... Yeah. I hate this patient. argument. I, yeah. I hate it. It's, it's, it, because it. Because it is inherently saying, I'm better than other people. That's the only reason to make that argument. Or I'm, I'm more um, theologically... I mean, I think it could have been used mm-hmm. during the eight 1930s or 40s to justify not being an activist mm-hmm. or being a civil disobediencer. It also could about have been used re- to do that. About, about, um, about blacks and Oh, the sorry. Yes, you could. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking about war. Yeah. But, yeah. Right, right. That's what I'm trying <laughs> to say is that it could have easily been used. Okay, the Lord is going to change this policy someday. Yeah. Right? So... Um, why should I join the protesters since it doesn't directly affect me? Yeah. Okay. I, that's the... the Lord is going to change this. It's fine. We know it's wrong. Is that permission to be lazy? Yeah. Morally lazy? Is we just wait for the church to tell us? I don't know the answer. Yeah, I think it's really hard. But thinking more about it, I think that there are kind of two ways to approach this. All right. Okay. The given that, and I've, I've mentioned this before, right? Uh, let's say that there's a principle of the church that bothers you. Okay. Okay. Let's say you're right. And um, the church will change that principle in the future. Yeah. Fine. Maybe you're wrong. Okay. <laughs> and additional revelation will come to you or context or age and experience or something. It will change your mind and realize that you were wrong about that thing. Yeah. Right. I've, I've used this as an as a I've used this argument as a way to frame cognitive dissonance within the church in previous episodes. Yeah. Okay. And I've I, there's three ways to do it. Right. The first way I just said. The second way I just said. And the third one is to realize that nobody really knows anything. That history is really hard. <laughs> philosophy is really hard. Religion is really hard. And maybe give everybody a break. Yeah. <laughs> but but some of these issues are really important, and so. Um, you've got the, with the benefit of 50 years of history, we can point at the civil rights activists in 1968 who, um, engaged in civil disobedience and say they were right. They were right. And the church had to change its policy. Yeah. Okay. And the church has disavowed any kind of of history where they were arguing for in favor of this policy. Yes. They've explicitly said those ideas as to why blacks didn't have the priestess were all bunk. Yes, they've the said that explicitly. Yep. And if you could repeat that again for my dad, I'd appreciate it. <laughs> I had this conversation with him and I showed it to him and he still didn't believe it. Okay. So, but that's useful with the benefit of history. Yeah. But it doesn't help me right now. <laughs> right. I mean, ultimately, that's why number three is so important, because there has to be an intellectual and a theological and a spiritual humility as we approach anything. We all have to be willing to be wrong, uh, but we also have to do our best to be right. What's interesting is that none of the policies that are that the church has right now that I could agree with or disagree with. Yeah. Right. I could be argued to be lawful or, or unlawful. Yeah. Okay. Which means that they wouldn't be that the whole issue of the law kind of just changes. We don't have to worry about it. Yeah, and that's not the worst position to be in, I suppose. It is the worst if 
Mm-hmm. You, um, I guess, I mean, isn't it nice that we aren't going to go to jail? Yeah, it's, super, it's, a, it's, a, it's a historical <laughs> privilege that we are living through. But it, it means we never really have to grapple with these questions. And it's through grappling with stuff, difficult things, that we really find out who we are and where we stand and what we believe. So maybe, I'm, I'm not saying that I want to be forced with the having to decide between doing my religion and doing jail. Mm-hmm. But there is an advantage to that. And, and um, yeah, I'm not, again, I don't want it. But the people who um, are dealing with that, and as you said, international church, there's a lot of different issues across the world. Um, props to the people suffering through that. And, yeah. and um, pray for your strength and courage. Yeah. And let's just reiterate, I mean, this has been a heavy episode, and we've talked about policy and the civil disobedience and the conscientious ob- objection. I don't think either of us anticipated it being a heavy episode. Quite this heavy. Yeah. Let's just re- be a short episode. Let's just reiterate how great conference was, shall we? As it was we, a good conference, as we close, yeah. close it out. Mm-hmm. And how, much, how Easter-focused it was. Yes. And how much we appreciated that. Um, I loved how Easter-focused conference was. Yes, yeah, no, I appreciated e- that. Easter. It hasn't always been the case. Um, in circa 2002, when I was taking a class on the history of the English language from Royal Skousen at BYU, uh, Easter and General Conference coincided, and Brother Skousen wagered with the class that Easter would not get mentioned. <laughs> and he was pretty much right. Yeah. It was uh, five sessions and, and really no Easter. Yeah. Isn't it great that we've come so far in 20 years? Yeah. From then, right? Thanks for making me feel old. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Very uh, uh, Easter-focused, this conference, which I really appreciated. And um, all of the talks um, had something to do with, I think, maybe most of them anyway. Yeah. Well, you you could look at at this episode, and you could, I think, rightfully call us out for not specifically saying... Which policies we may or may not agree with, and if you did, you know, you know, um, fair play to you. <laughs> yeah, it was. Um... Maybe we'll do that in a subsequent episode, or you know, maybe join our Discord server and we can talk. Yes. in more detail. Yeah, or or reach out to us however you like. My brother recently started listening. Oh, excellent! And we've been talking about it on Marco Polo. So ah. um, there's all sorts of ways to talk with people in the modern world. Okay. Uh, We're a proud member of the Dialogue Podcasting Network. We sure are. And hey, this is Aaron. After the show, recording later, I especially wanted to thank Daniel Foster Smith, who did our music and has helped us with audio lately. Thanks. Um, Please enjoy General Conference. Yeah. And your freedom. And your freedom. To agree and disagree. (laughs) All right. Bye, Eric. (laughs) Bye.